One of the things that researchers know and have shown time and time again is that the greatest predictor for childhood flourishing and teen flourishing is parent-child connection or what we call parent-child attunement, right? Our kids sense that when they seek connection or when they have any you know needs or vulnerabilities, that the way I describe it is pretty much every cell of us is there, regulated, we've handled our own stuff, we're grounded, we're available to be there for every cell of them, right? Every cell in us is able to be there for every cell of them. Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today, we're talking to Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Donna is the author of four books that explore the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and emotion, including The Angel and the Assassin, named one of the best books of 2020 by Wired Magazine, and Childhood Disrupted, which was a finalist for the Books for a Better Life Award. Her work has appeared in Wired, Stat, The Boston Globe, The Washington Post, Health Affairs, Parenting, AARP Magazine, and Glamour, and has been featured on the cover of Parade and In Time. She has appeared on Today, NPR, NBC News, and ABC News. Donna is also the creator and founder of the Narrative Writing to Heal program, your healing narrative right to heal with neutral re-narrating. She is a regular speaker at universities, including the Harvard Division of Science Library Series, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Arizona. She currently lives with her family in Maryland. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Donna's latest book, Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. Donna shares her top strategies or anecdotes to help adolescents flourish in the face of stress and comparison. We discuss how starting these strategies early on can be helpful, especially since puberty is coming on at such a young age that in times past. But don't worry, Donna reminds us and reassures us that you can start at any time. This is one of those parenting episodes that is truly invaluable in how it can shape and transform our children's mental health, especially in today's comparative society. Donna, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on and, you know, pick your brain on a topic that we, one, have never talked about on the podcast. Um, but also one that I haven't had the chance to pick anyone's brain on and go down some rabbit holes, like we were just saying. Um, and now having, you know, a son and a little girl on the way, this is, you know, really important to me and something I'm trying to actually be mindful with, even with my 15-month-old in just terms of, like, how much I'm on my phone what he sees me doing on social media. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, who doesn't love, what science journalist doesn't love a good rabbit hole? Oh my gosh, right? <laughs> right. Um, so I'd love, Donna, for you just to start off. I know we've read your bio, but I'd love for you to just start off with telling everyone a little bit more about your journey and how you came to writing Girls on the Brink and just give us a little bit of background. Sure. Well, I'm a science journalist and um, people often want to know, well, how, how did you get there? And, you know, I triple majored when I was at Duke in public policy and creative writing and English lit. And then I did a graduate, um, the Radcliffe program in publishing and I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I come by it honestly because on my father's side of the family is a long line of newspaper journalists and publishers. And on my mother's side, um, you know, one of the founders of NIH. So, like, I couldn't figure out how do these things merge in this brain that is excited by story and literature and narrative but like really loves those gnarly, difficult, hard to get to problems that affect all of us across across society. So, um, you know, somehow over the years, and I've written seven books, my bailiwick has really become that gnarly intersection between 
our brain and our immune messaging and what all that has to do with really that deepest layer of our lived experience in our human heart. And in terms of girls on the brink, as a science journal, you know, you keep files for years because you know, you've learned that we need to really see that something is uh, well replicated in the research before we want to go out there and educate about it. And so you keep files for years and years. And I've been keeping a file for a decade about rising rates of depression and anxiety and self-harm in girls, particularly, you know, between the ages of 10 and 21. And just we have hundreds of studies looking at that. The pandemic poured gasoline on the fire, of course, um, orsoning it. And at the same time, I had another file going with um, observations starting to come in from a group of kick-butt female neuroscientists who have been the very, very first to look at this question. How does stress across childhood and puberty affect the female brain, health and development differently than the male brain? And of course, this is a tricky question, right? Like I write in the book, I was hesitant to even go into this because we we tend to think of sex differences as negatives, right? Like uh, sex differences have been used against women across history. Like, you know, hysteria is a word that comes from the female uterus. And it wasn't that long ago that depression was thought to be your uterus wandering all over your body. And the cure was to go home and have more sex with your husband. So I really worried about getting into all of this. But the reason that I did is because I talked about all the books I've written, the research that I've dug into to do that on how stress and adversity across development affect the brain, the immune system, and our lived experience. All that research had been done on male research models. It was only a few years ago that the NIH asked or requested that female models be used in lab and preclinical research, which is the scaffolding for all clinical research. So I called these female neuroscientists who were digging in for the first time. And the answers that they gave me, to me, are so important in answering that question, why are we seeing this shocking, skyrocketing rise in girls who are sitting in ERs and can't get beds and saying, I just don't want to live. And I'm so curious, Sarah, like what, what was the difference between how the male brain responds and how the female brain responds to stress and, and how our immune system responds um, to the stress? Was it a big difference or? Well, here's where we begin to see the difference. So those stats that I talked about um, we begin to see a big difference in female and male mental health right through that passage of puberty between childhood and adolescence. And there are a bunch of things that contribute to that gap widening between boys' adolescent health and girls' adolescent health, and that gap continuing to widen in recent times. I mean, it is growing and growing. And one of the things that researchers told me re that had been left out of all of these experiments and research were those pesky hormones at puberty for girls because they didn't want those pesky hormones to get in there and mess up their experiments, right? So everything was based on male models. But we know a lot about puberty and estrogen and testosterone. We have a really good understanding of how those can amplify or help moderate our stress response. So what do I mean like that? I mean, everything you think of when I say that, you know, uh, feeling really reactive, stressed out, fight, flight, freeze, that you're not safe, that, the, you know, things, that state of overwhelm. And it turns out for reasons having to do with our evolutionary history, that 
the female stress immune response is more robust than that of boys and men when puberty comes in and estrogen comes rushing on board. So let me just say, estrogen is a super groovy, wonderful, amazing, amazing hormone. First of all, it does so much more than have to do with sex differences. You know, we think of it as like that thrum of excitement or, you know, moods. It, it's way beyond that. It's a master regulator in the body and the brain. As puberty comes in, estrogen helps to reshape and remodel the entire brain. It helps neurons to find each other and connect in synaptic connections. It helps growth hormones to like bathe neurons and synapses. And it helps the brain talk to literally every system of the body, every organ of the body. Now, evolutionarily speaking, as I said, estrogen is the reason why across human history, you know, women can stay up the same number of hours as men, do all the same things, you know, run an even long, I bet you run an even longer day with two, with one baby and another on the way than most men around you. I'm just saying I raised two kids. Your day is longer. You're probably doing more, but you're doing it all in a smaller body while making room, literally right now, to carry another life in your uterus and with a very much smaller organs. And estrogen is the reason that you get that boost. In a positive, it's why females have a more robust response to vaccines. On a negative, think about it, that robust response to everything going on in the environment around you, which is protective for you and your children and helps you keep them alive way back in the, in, you know, across evolutionary history. That also becomes an evolutionary disadvantage in the face of too many environmental threats, stressors, or insults. And then it flips and it amplifies the negative side of the stress immune response. And this is why we see women with three, four, five times the rate of autoimmune disease than men after puberty. And it plays a role in why at puberty, with this amplified stress response, we begin to see shifts in female adolescent health, and we begin to see this proclivity or this vulnerability toward depression and anxiety. Let me say, before anybody comes at us, that without too many environmental stressors, when the female adolescent brain is coming of age, with a sense of safety, belonging, worthiness, all those effects go away. And the female adolescent brain is a freaking superpower. That corpus callosum is really big between the two hemispheres of the brain. That spidey sense of knowing what's going on around you, of seeing what's safe and what's not, is really keen and robust and agile and full of promise. So really what we're talking about here is a world of overwhelm at a critical period of time. And I'm going to throw in one other thing, if you like rabbit holes. Puberty is also happening much earlier for girls. In 1900, it was 15. Yep. It's 11, 11. And you know what that means? It means that, well, once upon a time, childhood and adolescence were happening a period of development to figure out who you were, what you wanted, what you do when your friends are suddenly mean to you, how safe you are in small moments, how to respond to distress, whether something is an emergency or not, or it's just going to be a nothing in an hour. All of that is happening through experience in adolescence. And then puberty comes in. We said estrogen like, is going to remodel the brain based on all of that experience and intel, right? Kind of like a computer chess game that goes, okay, what were all the moves on the board? It's factoring all that in and making really crucial wiring in the brain for how to handle life. But when puberty comes in before adolescence and that estrogen comes streaming in, the brain is remodeling and wiring and firing up 
without that critical infrastructure of experience, which means that kids are facing a world of far greater overwhelm than what you and I grew up in, certainly what I grew up in. We've added in social media, which just makes it all that much hotter and more intense and more fear-producing and more, you know, it's all the algorithms are toward negative emotions, fear, disgust, anger, despair. And that is central in kids' lives at this age. And all of that is happening at a time when the brain isn't wired and fired up to be able to know, hey, it takes a lot of brain power to discern what am I really feeling? Like that's even hard for adults, right? What does this mean in terms of what I need to do next? Is this something I ruminate over endlessly or is this something that I go and ask for help? How do I ask for help? How do I express this overwhelm? And so we really have to step back as families, communities, schools, and rethink how we're getting in at this period of time before it and as it's happening and after it so that we reset the scaffolding for level of parent-child, family, societal, community, connection, and belonging that can be bigger and more enticing and more build out the brain in these crucial ways so that we're doing that and it's bigger and has a better, wider gravitational pull than the online world and social media, which is hugely addictive. Yeah. And I'm so glad that that was going to be my next question about like just how young girls are going through puberty now and also just compared to right to males as well. But I'm glad he brought up like talking about it and we're going to get into your strategies but starting before puberty happens and realizing oh, yeah. that your child may go through puberty in fourth grade, right? Like it, it's, which is wild to me still because you think of a fourth grader and like they're so young. Um, but just creating like a culture and an environment in your household, hopefully from the time they're young, or if you're listening now and you're like, oh shoot, but my daughter's in seventh grade, like you're you're okay. It's okay. Or they're Look, in high school already. Okay. You can <laughs> but, trust me. You can yeah. begin wherever you are. Um, but I'd love to hear and almost thinking kind of about those stages of, you know, if you're starting early on when you're child or daughter's young um and then or if maybe they're already in the middle school phase or they're in high school what are some of those strategies that we can do at our own homes and create that environment where they're feeling a sense of belonging and safety and comfort and how can we display that ourselves because like I, I was saying to you before I'm just realizing like my son, I mean, he's 15 months old, but he always wants my phone. It's like, oh, why do kids always want your phone? Uh, duh, because we're on it all the time. Like, but so it, you can tell it's already happening. Um, so how can we also, you know, create that environment, but display good behaviors ourselves? Well, it certainly does begin with our own behavior. And one of the things that researchers know and have shown time and time again is that the greatest predictor for childhood flourishing and teen flourishing is parent-child connection or what we call parent-child attunement, right? Our kids sense that, hey, when they are, when they seek connection or when they have any, you know, needs or vulnerabilities, that the way I describe it is pretty much every cell of us is there, regulated, we've, you know, handled our own stuff, we're grounded, we're available to be there for every cell of them, right? Every cell in us is able to be there for every cell of them. And now imagine a phone in the middle of that, right? That's the image that I want to give you, like, you know, girls I interviewed for the book would tell me, well, my mom took me out shopping, you know, when I was like 
nine and I was really thinking, you know, my body's so ugly and I came out of the dressing room, but she was on her phone, you know, clicking away and, you know, uh, not being able to get in on that parent-child attunement, not being able to read those signals that you're trying to, of course, we love our, our kids so much, right? I mean, it's the thing we think about when we wake up in the morning and the thing we think about when we go to sleep at night. Nothing gets in us like that desire for them to thrive and the love that we have for them. But in that, there is an art and a science to creating that kind of parent-child attunement. And so when kids are really young, you know, there is that sense of building in lots of time during the day where it's just how your family is that phones are not involved. Like pediatricians I talked to said, you know, kids, Bill, they look for attunement at certain times, obviously when they're in distress, when hard things are happening to them, but around food, in the car, like, you know, those moments, family moments where everything is put away except being with each other. And one of the number one things teen girls say is, I just want some down time as a family with nothing. Nobody has to say anything to me so perfect or, you know, because there are lots of scripts in the book for how to have these conversations with girls. But they just want to know that they've got that parent-child attunement, that like every cell in you is grooving on every cell about, you know, everything about your child. And that doesn't happen when we drop devices in the center of it. So that's an easy sort of thing as kids are younger. And it may seem to you like, oh, well, I've got eight, you know, eight minutes here while he's grabbing the pacifier to just like answer nine more texts. But that actually is a moment of parent-child attunement, right? And so I'm not trying to tell parents that you have to be perfect. We're so human and we need like to text back our friends because parenting is long and hard and blissful and very, very difficult. Very, very difficult, especially in today's world where so much has been thrown on parents and especially on moms who tend to be the ones who ruminate the most about their kids, take on more guilt, shame, concern, fear, and worry. So I don't want to pile in on that at all. It's just that that's an easy way to think about it. Am I creating that opportunity? Another word for it is biosynchrony. Like your biology and their biology are kind of aligned for good things to happen. And we, again, can't drop devices in the center of that and expect it to exist. As kids get older, we want to, you know, we, there are so many different things we can do to run through a few. You know, in every family has quirky things about it, right? I'm sure your family has a few quirky things. I mean, it's good to be quirky. Our, our family, my kids grew up, we had Friday night haiku writing, right? From the time they were like six or seven. And sometimes they bring their friends. And we have so many haikus that we love to go through from those years. And it was weird and quirky. Like, who wants to come for haiku night at my house? Well, it turns out lots of kids thought that was neat. And being different is okay. Like, being that family that, when the kids are younger, decorates a shoebox as a monster and, like, throws the phones in before meals and before bedtime. And, you know, that's okay. You can make this a routine or a ritual that is special to you while acknowledging that it's different than the rest of the world. And the more that you can create a kind of family identity about it, the more that kids who are in that those in-between years, you know, can embrace it and take pride in it. The same way, like, if your family runs to family meditation on Saturdays, well, it's weird to some, but it might be cool to them. It can be easy to overlook your heart health, but we have to remember it's what keeps us ticking each day and it needs our support. One of the best and easiest ways to support your heart is by supplementing with CoQ10, which supplies energy to our cells with high energy requirements like the ones found in our heart, muscles, nerves, and liver. As we age, our body's production of CoQ10 declines, but the demand for it does not. 
And as an added bonus, CoQ10 is arguably the most powerful antioxidant, which can help your body fight off the daily oxidative stressors that come your way. Whether CoQ10 in a delicious strawberry gummy, mini soft gel, or paired with heart-healthy omega-3s appeals to you, Nordic Naturals has you covered to support your heart. Head to Nordic.com and use the code NaturallyWell20 for 20% off all Nordic Naturals CoQ10 products. Did you find in any of your research or even when you were interviewing some of the girls, if their parents say they were present on their social media a lot and taking videos of their kids or like including them in their own, how that affected their children? So what I, the girls that I followed for two years did not have parents who, because they were older, right? And if their parents were posting pictures, it was like, here we are at so-and-so's, you know, soccer game, or here we are. Um, But they weren't doing what I think you're talking about, um, where, where it's that kind of like stylized, here's my baby growing, here's, you know. Um, everything cute about my baby, you know, you see that I'm not on TikTok. I refuse. I am on Instagram and, and you see like, okay, this baby is super cute and they're doing super cute little baby dances like my kids did and singing super cute songs. But I guess where we can tie all this together with the girls that I interviewed is no child wants to feel that they are performative for you, Mm -hmm. right? Because we already have ripped away what we might call those in-between years, between 7 and 13, which used to be a period of time where you laid on the grass and talked to your friends or had time to figure out what you were really passionate about. Was it poetry or photography or, you know, playing baseball? And those years are now replaced by a period of time where you're on club teams. Are you in the gifted and talented? You know, where are you going to middle school? How, you know, what exams are you taking to get into, you know, the magnet schools? And also, all of that is based on a hierarchical, competitive performance. How you're doing in school, on the playing field, what activities do you have? And all those benchmarks are faster and they're earlier. They're coming in much earlier and the, and the, the stakes are higher, right? So all of that is performative. Social media is by and large performative and competitive. Girls told me, Hey, if I wanted to be liked in middle school, I knew that I also had to be popular on Instagram. And if I was going to be popular on Instagram, I knew that I had to be willing to be act like I was a grown female, even though I was 10. And what do they mean by that? To be sexualized as a girl, as if they were a woman. So I think what you're asking about is being performative and what effect this has on kids. And the answer to that is it has a very negative effect, and especially for girls who are more likely to engage in what we call upward comparison, seeing what everyone else is performing and feeling that one's skin, one's face, one's appearance, one's development, one's brain, one's accomplishments, one's future is not going to measure up now or ever. I had a feeling that's what your answer would be. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, but it's it's good to know because I am. I I mean, I'm personally going through that phase of like, you know, I'm on social media for my business, but obviously also love to share my family and my son. But it, sometimes it just doesn't feel right, you know, or it doesn't feel right to even Sometimes like I love taking pictures of him all the time because then later late at night when, you know, even though he's given me quite the day, all I want to do is look at pictures of him. Sure. And that's all he's, but all he sees, you know, he sees me put my phone out a lot or now too, even with FaceTime, right? That, so it's just, it's really making me think, but, um, I love your strategy on just like that true connection that attunement and getting like putting your phone away what else can we do 
to really connect with our kids and and also make them feel safe and that they can also come to us if they're feeling a certain way. Uh, Because I know you said in your book that, or addressed in your book that we often feel overconfident that we know what's going on with our child and we know if they're okay or not. Um, But how can we create an environment where they feel safe enough to come to us when they're going through something hard or they're just, they're not feeling great about themselves? A hundred percent. So, um, so quick, I want to dip back to what we were just talking about because I want parents of older kids to know who are, you know, in that, um, seven to 13 and 13 to 16 range. We're also trying to build up social media literacy for them so that their observations, because what you were talking about, Kate, is, oh, you're observing this and you're worried how it will affect your son and your daughter over time. But we can help them observe this by developing social media literacy, right? Like just at, say, from a young age, wow, I wonder um, what this Per, I wonder how these uh, these platforms make money. Like, you know, I wonder for a girl in middle school, you know, I wonder what this influencer's life is like when she isn't taking pictures. I wonder how she makes an income. I wonder how you feel after you see that. And if we do that enough, you know, rather than jump in with all our judgments and what we think, Eventually, something really magical happens, and that is that rather than just this dive-in buy-in of social media and what it's the messages, the gendered, often toxic, comparative messages that it's sending girls being sort of like just slipping into their psyches, they start to see it differently. Kind of the way I liken it is like lit crit, you know, when you're reading novels. You know, we want kids to grow up so that they can read a novel or any book or anything and have an ability to to critique it from that literary criticism, that higher vantage point of seeing what's really going on in this narrative. And we can do that with social media so that this magical leap happens where instead of them seeing the problem as being them inside of them. I'm not enough. I don't compare. The problem becomes something external. And that magical leap is everything. Oh, this is not about me. This is a problem of this, you know, of of social media, of how it works, of how its algorithms are gamed. And asking, hey, you know, um, pay attention to how you feel after you get off that feed, because these algorithms now that you've investigated it, they are made to make us feel really rotten about ourselves. So anyway, but on to your question. No, but you know what, Donna, I'm going to stop you there because that, I think that's such a great piece of advice. And I also, all that keeps popping into my head is like, why isn't this a program in our middle schools? Oh, like, well. Even if it's just a, like once a year or twice a year, because obviously, right, like these are great strategies, but not, you know, not everyone may come from a supportive home or have parents who are listening that are in, you know, have the time or are really invested in asking these questions. Um, So I love that strategy, but I also like, oh my gosh, Donna, you need to like start pioneering, getting this into middle school, you know, just a class. Um, Very kind. We are doing great way. um, We are going to launch this spring, a four part course. For I love that. Years. So that will be coming out and it just breaks down all the strategies because everyone's a different kind of learner. Like, you know, different people need things to come at them different ways. Um, but you had asked me a really great question, which is, you know, how do we respond when our kids come to us with really hard things? Like if we're talking about parent-child attunement and biosynchrony, like how do we create that in the difficult moments. We were talking about it in the small downtime moments. But yes, that's the challenge, right? Like I've raised a son and a daughter. I'm a little bit ahead of you in their in their uh their ages and development. But 
parenting is really tricky. And there are lots of moments, especially if we had a history of adversity or trauma growing up, which two-thirds of parents have. There's no shame there. That is just a very normal thing. And usually that leaves us with some sticky places inside, some places where when certain things happen that um, touch on old feelings or old vulnerabilities, we might be more reactive than we like, or we might not know how to ground ourselves in that moment. So of course, the work begins with doing that work for yourself. And I talk a lot about how to do that in the book and I teach courses on it. But let's say that moment is here and you, your, your daughter is coming to you with something really, really hard. Well, there, there are lots of tips around this. It turns out there is an art and a science to being that parent in difficult moments in neuroprotective ways. And let's first ground this in the science. Researchers at Johns Hopkins have found the number one predictor of girls flourishing across puberty is if they can and if parents can answer yes to one question, can this child come and talk to you about anything? That's kind of mind-blowing because it really sets the stage for how crucial in those early stages of raising a family, building that child-parent connection is, right? And yet, knowing that that's so important, we might go, I don't know that I have the skills for that, right? And that would be a very honest answer. How <laughs> would be a very normal and honest answer. So... In addition to sort of starting with working our, you know, managing our own stuff, which I have tons of tips on, there are ways to come at that conversation. And the number one way, knowing what we know, that the brain is not getting time in today's world to wire up for overwhelm, is for us, rather than jumping in as the fixer or the detective, like, well, who sent you that text? Or, well, why were you at his house? Well, why, you know, who did that? Well, I'm going to call the school. Well, the, what did the teacher say? Is to allow that brain time to figure out and articulate their own story, their own feelings, what they need, because society is not giving them time to do that. And that means stepping back, not jumping in as the detective or the fixer, and Allowing a space where you have the skills to just focus, let your face be neutral. My friend Michelle Ickerd, who writes also about adolescent development, she calls it Botox brow. I don't know about that name, but like, let your face be neutral because kids are wired across those in-between years and adolescence to turn off at the very first sign of judgment. Teens will only voice themselves when they feel heard. And it starts with just our visual appearance, stepping back. Wow, that sounds really hard. Tell me more about that. And if you have a kid who's coming at you because you've been the fixer, which we all have, well, what do I do? Well, tell me, you know, I don't know what to say. What do I say? I promise I'm going to tell you what I think. But right now, what you think is so much more important than what I think. And I want to hear about that. And before we jump in with ideas or judgments, hey, I, ha I have a few thoughts now. Are you ready for them? Or would it be okay if I shared a few suggestions? So I have hundreds of scripts in the book to help us leap back, step out, recalibrate which we can do very quickly before we leap back in. And we don't do that. We're not, our parenting life isn't built for that space. So we have to do it. We have to learn the scripts. We have to learn this kind of four-step plan for responding in a way that allows the brain to wire and fire up for two things, resiliency and connection. So two questions from that, Donna. I'm saying both now so I don't forget them, um, <laughs> especially with this pregnancy brain that seems to have lasted since my last pregnancy. Um, <laughs> what if you can tell there's something going on with your child 
but they're not coming to you. How do you approach that? And then my other question would be, let's say you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I've been the fixer. Uh, My kid definitely doesn't feel like they can come to me because I am judge or like I've used judgment in the past. How do you how can you flip that script for your child so then they do feel comfortable coming to you from So I'll answer the second one first. Um, It is never too late. I loved the girls that I came to fall in love with who I followed through the book. They, as as their parents began to change, their relationships began to change. And for some of them, it wasn't until they were 19 or 20. But once the parents began to make these changes, the the Let's put it this way. A child's brain wants, longs to feel safe with you as their parent. And much can be rewired in their, in their feelings of safety of connecting to you when we change. So I've heard, you know, I, I heard parents go through a lot of effort. I've had a lot of students in my courses. Many of them are parents. Some are therapists, some are physicians, and going through that process to become that kind of parent or that kind of caregiver, maybe in your work as a nurse or a doctor or whatever, is relationship gold. And it turns out it it matters when we do it, like we want to do it as soon as we can so that we're like not having to do this work on the other end. But I will be very honest. I I wish I'd written this book when my daughter was nine, but I started it when she was a teenager. And I really wished as I was researching it. Now, the research wasn't out there then, so I can forgive myself a little bit. Um, But I kept thinking, oh, God, oh, God, you know, why, why, Donna, why? Um, (laughs) But that isn't really helpful to anybody. What is helpful is going, well, let me see what happens if I can learn this now, if I can understand this radical shift in how I provide a sense of safety and connection, not just, and while also knowing to answer your second question, I'm not supposed to be in this alone. Like we came from hunters and gatherers and tribes Kids came of age during those in-between years, that critical bridge between childhood and adolescence, with a lot of people around them. And we have good evidence that, uh, very good studies, which show that while that parent-child attunement with a single caregiver is the boon for life, it's just we have hundreds of studies on that. It's also crucial that kids have two non-parent adults in their environment with whom they feel a sense of belonging and that they matter, that what they're interested in matters. People who see them and, you know, I call them avatars for girls, you know, not it, it, avatars in their very old Hindu sense, the original meaning of the word, like other beings who are adult on this planet who are there to see and nurture and bring out the best in young people as they come of age. And in that higher sense, you know, we as moms often feel the greatest shame when things aren't going according to plan, right? Like, okay, your daughter comes home from summer camp because she was feeling really anxious. That's on mom. That's our society, right? That's how society rolls. So we don't tell a school, hey, she came home early from summer camp the way we would if our daughter had been in soccer camp and sprained her ankle. You'd call the coach, you'd email the coach, hey, she sprained her ankle. So a lot, some of it starts with our understanding that even as we make these changes and we start wherever we are, we also know that taking on shame and rumination about where we are is only going to keep us from connection. It is only going to get in the way of connecting and that we also can bring in the wider community. There are all kinds of different things that I write about in the book that we can do to build that scaffolding. And I liken it to those like Russian stacking dolls, you know, those Russian tea dolls, because 
we want to build that sense of safety, sure, in our kitchen, in our living room, in our car, in our parent-child connection. But we also want to build it in that next little nesting box, which is our kids' community, where they live, where they go to school, and then in that greater society at large. So the strategies in the book are to do all of those different um, spheres of influence so that a girl at the center feels safe and connected across all of them. I love that. And I, I keep, it keeps popping in my head, Donna, like the needs pyramid. Yes. Like how, like, you know, the main thing is like how, what we need. We need to feel safe. And if we don't feel safe, nothing else can come from nothing else. Um, I, I know we have to wrap up, but I do want to go back to that one question of like, if you do find your child, you can tell something's wrong. Yes. And you just don't know how to approach it, especially after listening to this. You're like, I want to approach it in the right way. Yes. What would be a good way to approach that situation or do you leave it alone? Well, so if it, so this is a very common thing, right? This is not, if you're sitting there, you're like, but my daughter doesn't come to talk to me and I know something's going on. That's very common. It's very normal and it's very okay. And you're not in it alone. But one of the first things that you can do that kids love us to do, and especially as they come toward puberty, when they're already thinking we might not have all the answers, is to walk up to the problem and just say, I feel like something is going on and I know that I haven't always reacted and I haven't always responded when you come to me in the way that I might have wanted to because I don't have all the answers and all the skills. But I'm really, I'm really noticing that about myself. And I want you to know that if you have anything going on in your mind, you have 15 minutes and I won't say a single word. Another trick that's turned out to be super, super popular in parent groups. So long story, I've taught a narrative writing program for a very long time. It's just something I'm super passionate about. And I've developed a narrative writing program, a mini little program for parents and teachers to use with girls. Very simple. And it's just turned out to be like a rock star go-to for parents for this very reason. You might not have a talker or you might have a situation where, for whatever reason, the adversities that your family has faced make it hard for your child to just sit down and articulate. And that's okay. That's okay. This is very normal. So one thing that girls love is if you suggest, you cannot tell them, it's a suggestion, it's an opportunity, it's an invitation, set their timer for 10 minutes and write about everything they're angry about, even if it's about you. Tell them that's okay. It's all right. Every single negative emotion that they're having, who did what to whom, there's one rule. You may not write anything negative about yourself because we know that girls are much more likely to lash in versus lash out. You can see that in the brain and the left amygdala. It gets very perfused and girls caught in cyclical rumination, which is highly associated with depression and anxiety. And we don't want that. And writing, narrative writing, expressive writing, you don't lift your pencil off the page for those 10 minutes. You just keep going. Girls would tell me that they like broke through the paper with the stuff they're writing. We want that to be outward and not to lash inward. And then at the end of this, and this is key, you tell, you tell your daughter at the end of this, you can rip it into 500 little pieces. You can throw it to the wind. You can put it you know, in the fireplace, and you are not to go run around and try to put those little pieces back together and find out what she was thinking or what she was saying. It has to be completely autonomous and hers and hers alone. Then set the timer for five to 10 minutes. Ask her, she has to set the timer. Ask her if she wants to write about all the ways in the past she's come through things that are this difficult. Things people have said or done that helped her how she might ask for help in this situation and what meaning is she taking out of it about who she is, what her strengths are. Is she, you know, is she someone who knows how to speak up for herself? Is she someone who really sees it, 
when people are behaving unfairly. She's someone with a strong sense of justice. And then tell her she can keep that if she wants to and look back at it later or she can rip it up. Even then, you haven't said a single word that you have created a profound sense of her being seen and feeling safe. I love that. I love that for like when we were talking about the kind of early intervention, just making that a normal thing or even, I mean, I guess at certain points they're still too young to write. I'm like, when small children are having temper tantrums, would you like to write your feelings down for me, please? <laughs> if but, only. If only. <laughs> but I do love that exercise starting that early. Like once kids can write. And I feel like also at that point, they really enjoy writing. It's like a whole new world for them and they get to be creative because that's one thing we've learned too, right? Like habit building. So yes. if we start some of those habits early on, Whereas maybe you have like a reluctant teenager who's like, well, I don't like writing. I don't want to do that. You know, but if they're just, that's just how we do it in our family. You know, yes. we write our feelings and they see you do it too. Like, oh, mom needs a moment to go for 10 minutes to write down what she's upset about. Yeah, I really love that. I, I mean, I so can't like, to, yeah. to throw in there, we also want to normalize in the same way therapy because we have really great evidence, well-replicated studies that talk therapy helps bring down the stress response in ways that can be measured in blood biomarkers. Okay. So what we're talking really here is about that inflammatory fight, flight, freeze state that can be measured by stress biomarkers. Talk therapy brings it pretty down in a powerful way. And yet in our sort of competitive cutthroat, what I call starling parent era, you know, starlings like kick out their birds out of the nest to give theirs a better chance where, you know, there's just one kid at your school who's going to get that travel team spot in lacrosse or whatever. Kids know the parents are just for their kids, you know, want to have that better spot, that award, that one writing, you know, whatever spot at the magnet school. And one thing that we want to make sure is that we aren't piling on other kids who have any kind of mental health concern. She didn't go to school because she's just not, you know, she just is sick, you know, tired of it. She said it's too stressful. Or her mom took her to a therapist. You know, a lot of times parents pile on in that kind of competitive world we're in where it's like, what? What was she's all 12? No. Just like you said about writing. How wonderful. How great. How fantastic that her parents recognized and that she was able to let them know that she needed to talk to someone. Parents don't always have all the answers. We try, we want to, but sometimes we need help. And I hope if you ever felt that way, you would feel completely free to let us know. By the way, I have therapy tomorrow and I need my tune-up so I can come back and be the mom you need me to be and deserve me to be. So I'll be gone for two hours. There's food in the fridge. Normalize it. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a big, and it's funny with my journey, I'm a big therapy proponent. I go every two weeks. I would go weekly. Um, but, and my husband's in his own therapy. And that's something I, I really want my children to learn. It's like, it's okay to talk about your feelings because I will say, I think I want to say I was in fifth or sixth grade. And um, my mom had passed away when I was five, Donna. And I did. I definitely had like some anger issues and some lashing out. And my dad remarried and I, yeah, wasn't getting along with my stepmom and, you know, my dad, which now like looking back and after having a discussion, I'm like, you know, like, and he had a very demanding job and, but he took me to a therapist. Yeah. I kid you not, probably for the five times I met with that therapist, I didn't say one word. I was so mad and defiant that my dad was telling me there was something wrong with me or when really, you know, I thought there was, he wasn't seeing there was something wrong with my stepmom or with. Very common. Very natural. But also, I didn't grow up at, like at that time when I was growing up, therapy did mean you had something wrong with you. It was yes. not normalized. I didn't see my dad go to therapy, which he actually was going to therapy after my mom passing. Like I didn't, 
I wasn't aware of it. So I think like you said, even just telling your child, like maybe you do go to therapy each week, but you you don't think about telling them that's what you do or they're in school when you go. Right. I think it's a really big key. Because if I had known like, oh, my dad's also in therapy, like, you know, I have other family members in therapy and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. I think I probably would have opened my mouth once in one of those sessions and probably gotten a lot out of it. You know, it took me then later, I've had to go to so much therapy, which a lot of it probably could have been solved then. Um, And that, you know, is a really, really good point. And um, one of the girls I followed told me, I just hated my parents when they said I had to start therapy. And the first five sessions, the therapist and I just threw a beach ball back and forth. And I just batted it back at her and she batted it back at me. But now, now she's in college and she's like, it was, it was just such a great gift that they gave me because now when she comes home from college, she still sees that therapist and she said her words are just always in her brain, helping her like reframe, you know, come to a place where she can be, um, more centered. And so, you know, again, I think normalizing it so that it doesn't, feel like something that we're forcing our kids to do, but we've talked a lot about having things that are just who we are as a family that work for us and putting it in that kind of light can really go a long way. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just going through some of those strategies on it, like how can people listening right now not want to go read the book or take, I'm so glad you're coming out with a little course too. Um, I wish honestly we had more time to go into more of them. But there we do love so oh, there's so many, and I love it's true. You can find what works for your family because every That's family right. is different. Every dynamic is different. Not everything in the parents book is are work reading. Yeah, yeah, and you know, like some parents are traveling a lot for work and aren't home a lot, and kids are with an au pair or a nanny a lot of the time, and it. Everyone just has their own dynamic, um, but I feel very confident that they can find a plan that works for them and just start with one strategy, see how it goes and go from there. Um, so we love to end every episode with a little rapid fire Q&A for our listeners to get to know you better. So first thing that comes to mind, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? Um, I use so many, but probably my favorite is to sit my butt down in my favorite meditation chair and put on one of my favorite teachers and do that very old-fashioned, old school. By now, everybody knows how to meditate and just bring it in over and over again until I bring things down. But I also, another trick that I use all the time is find, it's in my own head, find the waterfall. Like, where is, if you've ever stood at a waterfall, there's that moment where the light falls on the water and the sounds come to you and you switch out of into, ah, uh, and look around you just in this moment. Where is your waterfall? It might be like I'm looking at the light coming on the back of my rescue dog's back. That is a waterfall as her breath goes in and out and in and out. So lots of things. Those are two. Oh, I love that. I'm going to use that. My waterfall is watching my child sleep very well right now. Um, (laughs) The light on his cheeks, you know, it's like really good. I love that. You know, Uh, it's a special moments too. Okay. Coffee or tea? Tea, coffee makes me jittery, and I make every morning a blend of English breakfast and Earl Grey. I'm allergic to milk, so I add coconut milk, and I'm just it's probably like that, sitting down with that cup of tea in my meditation chair in the morning. Don't take that away from me. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a great start to the day, too. Um, okay, our last one and my personal favorite, what is your favorite home-cooked meal? And it doesn't have to be something you make. It could be something that someone else makes. Okay, this is very decadent, but really, um, my favorite home cooked meal is not something we make very often because it's too decadent, but it's steak frites. I've oh. spent a lot of time in France and it's just a real French steak frites. It's just 
you know, you just can't beat it. So I always convinced my husband to have it for his birthday. Oh my gosh, that sounds so great now, especially pregnant. Yeah. Um, oh, that is the best. Well, Donna, thank you so much. I, where can people, you know, connect with you, learn more about your courses, your books, um, particularly Girls on the Brink? Give us all all the ways. Sure. So um, easiest, I mean, you can find Girls on the Brink anywhere, wherever books are sold, you know, favorite online. But of course, I love people to use IndieBound. Uh, you support your local indie bookstores if you can, but that's easy to find. It's everywhere. And as for me, you can find me on Instagram at Donna Jackson Nakazawa. You can find me my website. You can read all about my courses and all the books that I've written. And that's just DonnaJacksonNakazawa.com. I'll be honest, I'm not on Twitter very much these days. It's just like feeling way too, like I can't get through the scrim of negativity to be there. Um, and I'm trying to use on Instagram social media for good. I think I'm succeeding. I always have to ask myself that question. But my website and Instagram, or just Google me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Donna. This has been so enlightening for myself. And I feel very fortunate to have had this conversation with you with, <laughs> I say my kids being so young, one still cooking. Um, <laughs> And getting to have this new perspective. So thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And happy babying. This week's actionable step is to try using one of the strategies Donna discusses that you think suits your family best to get your kids to feel more safe and connected so they feel comfortable coming to you to discuss hard topics. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at LiveWellWithKate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.